chapter. We're in uh, Mark chapter 11. Let's, uh, let's read our text, verses 1 through 11. You all know this text, uh, and uh, there's some interesting things going on there. Okay, so Mark 11, 1 says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told him what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So uh, I'm calling this uh, A Humble King, the title, and uh, and the theme of our text, I hope to uh, show you, is that Jesus here demonstrates that he is the promised king. Uh, Chapters 11 through 13 will show uh, Jesus in conflict with, and, uh, with the Pharisees, and uh, we will see the uh, rejection of the temple in Jerusalem and his rejection of the religious leaders and their system. So we're starting something new. This is a, this is a, a big page that we've turned from the uh, meandering up and down through the wilderness and, and uh, teaching along the Sea of Galilee and, and so on to uh, really we are now moving into the center of the universe at the time, right? The holy city, this is, uh, this is a much uh, higher stakes card game, if you will, than his ministry so far. Okay, so uh, we, I want to point out a couple of things just to uh, put in our pocket before we kind of walk through this. Uh, One is chapters 11 through 16, where we're starting today. Uh, It's a third of the gospel of Mark is dedicated to what we call Passion Week. It's Passover week. This this week, essentially, in uh, 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 it's Jesus' last earthly week, right? It's the the week leading up to his death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, So it's it's a busy week. Uh, It it will culminate in, uh, you know, the the most important event in history. And this idea of the triumphal entry, which we've read this morning, is recorded in all four of the Gospels. So the arrival of Jesus into Jerusalem sets in motion a series of events where there will be no turning back. 
Uh, each of the gospel writers, it's important that we understand, they, uh, they each have a, a slightly different audience. They're writing with a slightly different purpose. And so as we look at our narrative this morning, uh, we have to uh, try and understand what Mark is teaching us in this. So if, so if we compared all of the uh, four Gospels and their description of this, they have different information in it, different details. And so we need to lean into that and see what Mark has for us. As we, we look at this picture, we have this information, but each of the writers is showing us something different, a different viewpoint, whether it's from Jesus or from the observers, and, uh, and certainly a different lesson as well. So we need to be open-minded about that. Mark, you'll see, is very clean in his description. You'll see there's no commentary. Uh, the other gospel writers offer uh, commentary about these events, and it's a, it's a very uh, clean, terse style of writing like we've seen uh, through Mark uh, so far. In the past, when we've had big events from Mark, like uh, the uh, Transfiguration or uh, Jesus is um, baptism, there's uh, there's a lot of Old Testament themes that Mark, Mark uses words to pull Old Testament threads into the uh, story, and he's done that significantly. There's there's a lot here. And he doesn't even point it out, which is kind of interesting. So, uh, so that's one thing. The other thing that we need to to consider this, uh, you know, this. Well, you guys might not like to hear what I'm about to say, but there's a very high probability that the events right here in our text with the triumphal entry didn't happen at the beginning of that week. So if we if we look at this this text. Mark has pulled a lot of teaching into the chapters from chapter 11 to chapter 16. And if all of these events happened in a calendar seven-day period, uh, you know, there, there's like uh, two and a half chapters that occur in one day. It's just, it's, it's just a lot of stuff going on. So um, I don't know why I was nervous to say that, but... Uh, I'll, I'll read something from uh, from James Edwards, which I, I think is uh, it's our favorite commentator on, on this piece. Uh, the, uh, John's Gospel has Jesus in Jerusalem as at least four months prior to Passover week. Okay, to put that into perspective, so. I grew up with Palm Sunday and, you know, it's the calendar week and all of this stuff, and it really may, might not be, okay? So uh, this is what James Edwards says. He says, the description in the first part of the Talmud of the celebration of the fall harvest festival known as the Feast of Tabernacles, which including waving branches of palm and willow and shouting Hosanna, is closer to the description of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem than anything associated with the spring Passover celebration. Uh, <clears throat> Mark, in, his, in chapter 14, in a few chapters, uh, when Jesus is uh, sort of duking it out with the Pharisees, he says to them, 
Every day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. So if we stick to a true one-week period, that's like a day and a half there. It, just, it wouldn't apply. It wouldn't, it wouldn't make sense to make that uh, argument that he, um, he makes. So uh, we will see him through, throughout our text traveling every day from, uh, from Bethany uh, to, into the city and, and then back out. So uh, it's very likely that he was camped out uh, you know, uh, for some time. Uh, before uh, his this week occurred, okay, but you know Mark's pulling it in, and and he has a reason for it certainly, and we'll hopefully uh, see that. So uh, if 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 James Edwards is right about the timing of this, it will explain the next piece of our text as well. It it doesn't it really makes no sense if uh, if the timing of that is not in the fall. Uh, his the interaction with the fig tree and so on. So we'll burn that bridge when we get to it, though. Okay, so um, let's, uh, let's get into this. But before we do, I want to show you some things. I want to ask a question, okay? So does everyone here, I mean, I, I certainly grew up with this, uh, with this uh, belief. Does everyone here believe that Jesus is a great teacher? I mean, we've been watching him teach so far, right? If I said, we all believe that, right? Okay. So, if that's the case, why is it, do you think, that the disciples maybe seem clueless at really important times in the narrative, right? So, so many times, Jesus is talking about the, uh, you know, the greatest in the kingdom will be the lowest, while the disciples are arguing who's the greatest. So, like, why does it seem like they're always kind of missing the boat, right? Jesus, this amazing teacher, his closest friends in the world seem to not be getting it. You, know, you ever think about that? that anyone want to wager a guess? Timmy. Your beard looks great, by the way. It looks good. Um, well, let's so let's just go back. Uh, like, let's just turn back a couple of pages to nine, chapter nine, and um, it's verse nine. This is right after the transfiguration. Okay, what an event, right? And so uh, they're coming down the mountain. He charged them to tell no. One, what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, they said, questioning, what is this rising from the dead stuff? Right? They don't, so, so something's, there's a disconnect there. Something's missing there, right? Well, we have seen through all of the teaching that the understanding of the teaching is a gift from him. Right, So he has been very careful on his walk, on his path, on his teaching to reveal bits of himself and the truth uh, you know, as, as they come along. So it, it's, it's really been a hidden kingdom, right? And so we, we, see the, we see the picture so far all throughout this 
that those that believe are those that sort of like push through, right? Remember uh, the, uh, uh, the the Samaritan woman. She, you know, he sort of he gives this riddle about dogs and you know this this thing, and she and it's not enough. She wants Jesus so bad she pushes through to uh, to get to the real Jesus because she wanted him so badly, right? So you see this this sort of picture of of what is hidden, this hidden kingdom, and he's revealing it sometimes uh, overtly, and people see, right? We had Bartimaeus a couple weeks ago. Bartimaeus was blind, but he could see, right? He was a foil to the rich young ruler who knew Jesus was a great rabbi, but wasn't willing to give up his stuff, right? It's, you know, so, so we see this contrast all the way through the, the, the text, and, and here we are, and, and things are changing uh, quite a bit in our text. Like we're going to see a lot more in chapters 11 through 16. So, you know, the lights are, are starting to come on. But, but we're going to see here in our text that they're not totally on yet. The crowds, the disciples, they don't fully understand. And they won't until the other side of the cross, right? And so and that's what he's saying there. Hey, Keep this on the down low now. Don't be talking about it. But after his death, burial, and resurrection, they will understand. All of this will become clear. But the, but the, the key moment of revealing his glory hasn't happened yet. Okay, so, so I want to show you six or seven things from the, uh, from the Old Testament that Mark has I believe, woven into the text, and then we'll, uh, we'll do something with that as it relates to, uh, to Jesus. So in this account, Matt, Matthew and John both uh, include Zechariah 9.9, that this event is the fulfillment of prophecy from Zechariah. And uh, I'll, I'll read a little bit of it. So Zechariah 9.9 uh, starts... Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then there's some, uh, some language in, in, in there for, uh, for a few verses uh, talking about his kingdom and uh, and what he will do in verse 16, on the day of the Lord, their God will save them as the flock of his people for like jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. So Matthew 21 and John 12 both quote this text in their event because they're showing something here. Mark, uh, Mark leaves that alone, but uh, we are at least seeing this fulfillment of prophecy. So let's make a note of that. Um, <clears throat> Genesis 49, verses 10 and 11, uh, <clears throat> says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine, and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, his teeth 
whiter than milk. So Jacob in Genesis 49 predicts here the great dynasty of David and the greater kingdom of Jesus Christ. And the donkey motif here um, in this sort of regal prophecy. Let's, uh, let's look at another one. The uh, Davidic kings riding on a humble beast of burden has precedent. So this, this idea of coming in on a, on a colt or a young donkey. Uh, Solomon was presented as David's rightful successor by being placed on David's mule in 1 Kings. Maybe you remember that it was uh, Adonijah uh, and another brother, they were sort of like angling for the kingdom, right? Dad's sick, who's in charge kind of a thing. They're making their play. And, um, and so in comes Solomon riding on David's mule. The image of the king on a mule is one of humility. And uh, final salvation for the people of God would not come through the traditional route of a conquering king on a noble horse. Instead, it would be achieved in an unexpected way, uh, you know, different than what men would uh, regard as honorable. It, it, you know, they, they look at it, it, it's weak, it's despised, it's embarrassing, right? It's a, a completely different uh, picture here. And so... The scriptures don't horse around. The, the donkey is a sign of humility. Uh, it's a sign of labor. It's a sign of, uh, strangely enough, regal authority in the, uh, in the Israelite uh, line. The horse is a sign of human strength. The horse, horse is a sign of pride and, and conquering, right? And, we, and we've seen that also. We see... Um, uh, conquerors ride in with all the stallions and all of this. And, and so this picture is in great contrast to what the people of Jerusalem are even hoping for. If you, if you get, they're looking for uh, a liberator from the Roman occupation, right? Recall humorously that Saul, the failed proud king of Israel, marks his beginning as the nation's leader doing what? Looking for a pair of lost donkeys. You guys remember that? He never rode them. Yeah. Isn't that gorgeous? So Absalom and uh, Adonijah, the rebellious sons of King David, promoted themselves in their attempt to usurp their father's throne with horses, chariots, and grand uh, processions. Not a sign of humility at all. So Jesus connects himself to the line of David by riding in on a colt. Uh, further, he connects himself to the line of David when he says, the Lord needs it. We saw that, that language there. He says in verse 3, if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and I will send it back here immediately. Okay, in Mark 2, maybe you remember uh, Jesus tangles with the Pharisees. Uh, in 2.23, I'll, I'll read a little bit of it to remind you. 
One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. Remember that? The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Okay, so how does Jesus answer them? He says, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. So when confronted, he identifies with his father, David, if you will, right? And uses this language in in verse 7. He says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord of even the Sabbath. The Lord needs it. So, um, I just love it. But So when questioned by the Pharisees in Mark 2, Jesus tied himself to King David. He's the son of David. David's greater son is here. <clears throat> the Sabbath is for the Lord, and this cult is for the Lord as well. Okay, so a couple more things we want to pick up from Mark. Jesus demonstrated his divinity, his divine kingship, when he chose an unused cult. Something special about this cult. And Mark doesn't give us much detail, right? So when he does, we've got to pay attention. Why? Why is he, why is he giving that? So uh, verse 2 says, a cult on which no one has ever sat. So this extra detail is that this cult must be a cult that has never been ridden. Like the pristine, unyoked cows used to pull the Ark of the Covenant, the true Ark of the Covenant required an unridden unridden animal. The pristine cult would carry the Holy One into Jerusalem. What's also worth noting is the rider is also pristine. He is not ridden to this point. He's been hoofing it the whole way up and down uh, Judea and, uh, you know, a boat trip here and there, but, uh, but he's been on foot. So this is a very special event that we see we are tied to here. Uh, and then in verse 7 and 8, it says, And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from fields. And so we see in Second Kings that the crowds and the disciples spreading of cloaks, like this is a customary way of treating a king when he comes into town. So, uh, so this is this is a uh, has kingship. All this activity has kingship written all over it. So they're cutting palm branches, right, and, uh, and shouts of Hosanna. The waving of palm branches and shouts of Hosanna uh, seem to be related to Psalm 118. The, uh, we'll talk about Hosanna in a minute, but uh, the psalm says, Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is what they're, what they're chanting. And, uh, and they, would, they would shout this at um, two times. One would be the Feast of the Tabernacles, which may, may be the exact timing of this. 
but also uh, Passover. And so uh, keep in mind that you've got a lot of people for these special events, for these feasts. You've got a lot of people out in the wilderness, uh, you know, with their house on the prairie, right? They're coming into the city for worship. And so this is happening uh, it, it's it's common. It doesn't mean only that it could be a king, but uh, but certainly uh, it does relate to that in a minute, and we'll, we'll we'll get to that. So this psalm was used at the Feast of Tabernacles and Passover, and the cry from the crowd, "Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord," is shouted to pilgrims as they come into the city for celebrations. Pilgrims are blessed in God's name, but what they say after this, the crowd here, changes the meaning of the Hosanna cries. Uh, Verse 10 continues, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. They don't shout that. That's special. Uh, Hosanna in the highest. So this is truly something extra going on here, and uh, and their Hosanna uh, just is a um, transliteration that means save, I pray. And so uh, uh, what's going on here? You've got, so the, crowd's, the crowd is excited to see Jesus coming in. Maybe they don't completely understand who he is. We have to, we have to realize that. Uh, but, uh, but Jesus knows who he is and 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 Jesus is the actor and the the center of this uh, this event. So the crowd is looking for a savior and shouting and and attributing savior status to him. But we'll see shortly that he's not the savior that they want. You know, he's uh, his his plan is not the plan that they uh, that they want. His uh, they they want a savior from Rome. They're they're not looking for a uh, spiritual savior. Okay, so whether they fully understood what they were saying, feeling, or even doing, the crowds, even the disciples in their hearts, longed for a savior. Jesus would no longer hide who he was from them. The messianic implications of his entry into Jerusalem are clear. Although the means by which the kingdom of God comes is not yet fully clear and not yet fully understood. So Jesus is the Lion of Judah. He's the fulfillment of the Messianic prophecies that are some 500 years old at this point. He ushers in a new and permanent kingdom. He will reign long after the Roman Empire falls away and so many empires and kings after that. Okay? I um I I I need to get cooking here. I uh, I need to go a little faster. I want you to uh know a couple of things. I want to uh I want to identify a few things. So Mount of Olives where Jesus comes in, he's in uh Bethany and Bethpage. It's a Bethpage is a hamlet. Uh uh Bethany is um uh where he's staying. It's it's 2600 feet above sea level which is higher than Jerusalem. So this is a vantage where he'll travel back and forth from Jerusalem. He has a view of the holy city uh, below him, which is very uh, interesting and and special. Um, Because 
Mark's picture of or perspective for the story is vastly different than the other uh, writers. Mark is showing us a, a picture of lowliness. Jesus as a low and humble king, his entry into Jerusalem really isn't triumphal. We, we don't get all of the extra, hey, fulfillment of prophecy stuff from Mark. Mark doesn't even give us the crowds. He says many people throw some cloaks on the, on the ground, right? So he even downplays the size of the crowd. So we have to lean into what Mark's perspective is for us. They shout the right things, but we don't know that they understand how right they are. Perhaps only Jesus knows in this scene. So we see, again, a, a kingdom of hidden majesty and a humble savior. That's what we should be seeing in, in Jesus here. So whatever the people thought, Mark ends the scene on a low note. In verse 11, we go from shouts of Hosanna to a quiet survey of the temple. And off to bed we go, right? Hardly a climactic event. So Mark's storyline will become more clear as chapter 11 unfolds. But this is what we learn about our Savior in the text. We see that Jesus is in control of the story. He's the initiator of the events here and the focal point. And I say that because he's the, he called the shots on the colt, you know, sent the two guys to the rental agency and, you know, I need a rental car, hook that up. I, I believe, like, we, you know, so we don't have a lot of background. I, I believe that that was probably divine. Uh, it, sure, did Jesus in his travels maybe connect with the guy and say, hey, I'm going to send some guys to grab the colt, you know, have it, you know, gassed up and ready to go, you know, but I, I don't think so because they ask the, the disciples when they, when they get there, like, what are you doing with the colt, right? So I think that's divine. I think that's, um, that's Jesus uh, just showing his divine control of the whole situation. Uh, he submits to God's work. He faithfully executes the prophecy. Uh, he could have come in any way he wanted. He could have rode in on a lion if he wanted, you know, and yet he faithfully fulfilled every detail in, uh, in, in prophecy from, you know, from Samuel to uh, uh, Isaiah to Jeremiah. All, all of the prophecies are, are filled perfectly. Uh, he embodies humility, coming in on a donkey as the prince of peace. He will begin his reign on the cross, right? What a humble savior uh, we serve. Uh, he alone can save. So the shouts of the crowd couldn't be more true. Uh, I, I made a note that this entry fulfills uh, prophecy from 2 Samuel, from Isaiah 9, 11, Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel 34, and Micah 5 but not in the way the people were expecting or even wanting. They were right. He is their king, but not a king to purge the Romans. He came to purge their sin. While they long for a temporary savior, he brings what only he can bring, which is complete and eternal salvation of body and soul. Not a savior only for the Jews, mind you but a savior for the whole world, 
for any who will believe on his name. John 1.12 says, right, to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. We see that he always acts justly. His character doesn't change in this. He, uh, he will judge the situation. He, will, uh, he, will, he evaluated the temple in our text. He will purify it. He will finish his work on the cross. And because he's just, he couldn't tell them, he couldn't silence the crowd when they were yelling, Hosanna, save us, because he deserved it, right? So he, um, Luke mentions in Luke's commentary that even the rocks would cry out, right? So he certainly deserved the shouts of Hosanna as he rolled in to town. Jesus is bringing uh, righteousness and judgment to the leaders of the holy city. He's bringing salvation to his people. He didn't come to reform the temple. He came to replace it. His work on the cross will perfectly atone for people's sin, and he will be the place where his people dwell with God. This is God's eternal plan. Uh, 1 Peter 1 explains that, but I don't have time to do that. I, I want to uh, finish with a, a couple of thoughts here. So <clears throat> we see here, as in the past with Mark, the contrast of the sort of enthusiasm, the animal spirits of the crowd, if you will, with uh, true and real discipleship. See what's see that uh, we we saw it in the feeding of the four thousand, right? That second feeding, right? They're, they get excited and they want to sort of overthrow the local government and you know kind of push him up, right? He so he feeds the four thousand, and we get that. January 6th kind of uprising, right? And the excitement of a Christian-type rally can encourage and motivate us, but is no substitute for individual understanding and commitment. It happens even here at church. So showing up to hear a good sermon is not the same as committing to Jesus, searching Scripture, plumbing the depths of your sin and growing in your need and desire for him. We have to be careful. We have to see this, that we're not that crowd shouting Hosanna, save us on Sunday, and, and we go home to our own lifestyle. <clears throat> we, need to, we need the experience of social faith. The church is perfectly designed for us by God. But we also need personal growth. We uh, tend to neglect that. It is real work. A true disciple is not only shouting Hosanna on Sunday. In our text this morning, Jesus is the only one who acts and understands the significant of, significance of those actions. The people shouting Hosanna, and they're really clueless. They, they don't know who he is and will turn from him as soon as they figure it out, Right? So let's not be people like that. Let's be real and, uh, and be honest about what it means to be a disciple or a follower of him. Okay, Check out uh, 1 Peter 1, 1 um, later on.